Amen. Uh, <clears throat> so two things. One is, this is the first time I'm actually preaching a sermon online, and so I, I don't know how it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be a little weird for me, and probably a little weird for you. And uh, I guess it's good for you. You know, you could always make fun of me, and you could always make faces at me, and I would never know. Uh, you could fall asleep, and I would never know, and that's probably a good thing. Uh, the other thing is, I'm sitting down and preaching, and I'm not really used to uh, sitting and preaching. I tried it once before in another church, and uh, I just had to stand up. And so, uh, something I think I get used to, but uh, let's see how, how it goes. Anyways, <clears throat> if you have been with us in the past couple of weeks, you know that we've been uh, starting the series here in, in 1 Corinthians. And uh, we did two weeks of this already, and we're still here in chapter one. And part of me kind of almost regrets starting the series. I was telling Pastor James that this is a long, uh, not long chapter, but long book. And Paul's letters are very, very deep. And so I feel like I'm going to be in this thing forever. But nevertheless, we're looking here at verses 10 to verse, to verse 17. And if you remember what we did last week or last two weeks, the first nine verses of this chapter He's basically giving the Corinthian church their identity. Uh, he's trying to tell them who they are, that what God has done for them, to them, uh, who they belong to. He's called them saints. He's called them sanctified or, or, or set apart for him. And then he gives thanks to God for the grace that he sees in their lives. And this is a church that had a lot of problems. They, they had a lot of issues. And yet he's doing this because he really believes that this is who they are by their faith in Christ. And the reason why he does this in verses 1 to 9 is because from verse 10 in our passage all the way to the end of the book, he begins to talk about their behavior. And this is just so like Paul because Paul, before he addresses how we should live, uh, what we should do, the, before he gives us the imperatives, he, he tells us what we are. He tells us who we are. Uh, he tells us whose we are. He gives us the indicatives. Before the imperatives, he always gives us the indicatives. Because for Paul, God never tells us to do anything without first telling us what he's done for us, what he's done to us, and what he's given to us. And that's something that I think we need to keep in mind as well. And there are three points that I think, three quick points that I want to make from this passage. Three, three Ps to help you to, to, um, to, to, to memorize or to know this. First, there's the problem. Second, there's, there's the plea. And then third, there's the priority, okay? The problem, the plea, and, and the priority. So let's look at this very carefully. First, there's the problem. You know, oftentimes I hear about problems in the church, and it's not because the people having the problems actually come to me and tell me I've got a problem. But the way I hear it is often secondhand. Someone brings it to my attention. And that's how I often have a pulse on the church. And it's the same thing here in our passage. You look at verse 11, Paul received a report from a person named Chloe, and Chloe, probably through her messengers, reported that there's quarreling among the church. There's quarreling in the people here in this church in Corinth, and it's because of this quarreling, verse 10, Paul says that there were these divisions, uh, literally splits. So you've got splits and you've got quarrels in this church, quarrels and splits. Now, if you really think about this, it, it, it's not very... Um, special is it it's not such an uncommon issue it, it was there back in the church in paul's day and uh unfortunately it, it's also in the church today as well and it can happen between groups right it could happen between individuals uh but it happens and unfortunately it happens a lot 
But as common as this issue is, it was the most important thing here for Paul. Paul had a lot to say, and he's going to have a lot to say about how the church is and their behavior, because they've had a lot of issues with their behavior. They've got immorality going on. Their view of marriage is a little skewed. They have a weird view of Christian liberty. Their view of the Lord's table was off. Their, their spiritual idea of spiritual gifts was kind of strange, and money was off as well. They had a lot of issues, and as bad as some of those issues might have been, among all the issues that they have, the one issue that he puts at the very beginning, right, at the very top of the list, is in the area of the unity, the unity of the church. John chapter 17, if you read it, Jesus prayed, and he prayed with the disciples, and he prayed that you and I, that the disciples in the church would be one. He told the disciples to love one another. He gives them that imperative love one another. Why? What was the reason? And the reason was so that the world might know by their unity who they were, a loving, caring community of believers saved by the grace of God alone. That's the indicative, right? And so that's why this issue is so important for Paul, not just because the church could break up, but division can suck the joy out of fellowship. Division can ruin the testimony of believers to, to the rest of the world and to the church outside. And so generally speaking, that's the problem that Paul addresses. That's the problem, this, this division, this, this split, this disunity, if we can call it that way. And in verse 12, you're given the particular source or the reason for this division. Verse 12, Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Uh, you know, people said, I, I follow Paul because he started the church. Uh, people said, I follow this guy, Apollos, because he's, he's a great preacher and he's gifted and I learned a lot from him. Or people were saying, I follow this guy, Cephas, literally meaning Peter, uh, the apostle Peter. And, and he was one of the original apostles. And so I follow him. And yet then you have these holier than thou people who kind of just say, well, you know, I just follow Jesus Christ. Right. And uh, it's a strange issue here in this church, but the division was because of loyalties. There was a division of loyalties in this church. And you might think that, that's kind of irrelevant to us. Uh, I mean, especially in our church, uh, we may have other reasons that we quarrel or that we split over, but certainly not this, because after all in our church, the only pastor or leader you've had for a long time was just me, right? You had no choice. Uh, you either follow me or you didn't. You either like me or you don't, right? But, but you had no choice until now. And now we have Pastor James, right? So wouldn't it be silly if we had a church split over because Sam said, I want to follow Pastor James or I want to follow Pastor Francis. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And the thing is, it's not Paul's fault. It's not Apollos' fault. It's not Cephas' fault. And it's not Jesus' fault. It's certainly not his fault that this issue was there. Well, then whose fault was it? It's the fault of the people right? And what I want to show you from this is that uh, underneath the issue of unity, there underneath that issue or behind that issue is something that all of them struggle with. And that is a general issue of what we can just simply say, selfishness. Selfishness. I want to suggest that under the issue of disunity or this loyalty uh, issue, and, and the reason why they have these splits under that issue is the general issue of selfishness. Because uh, after all, <clears throat> anyone who knows the Bible, right? Anyone who knows people would know that people uh, can be very selfish, right? Uh, I can be very selfish. People around me, are, I think, are, can be very, very selfish. 
But I wanted to find that word more carefully. I'm not talking about the obvious sort of selfishness of someone who never wants to share anything, uh, someone who never cares about anything else, but a, a more broader understanding, a more basic understanding. You look at the word selfishness and the word self is there. It's the idea of, of self. When you're selfish, it's simply the idea of self. It's the idea of you. It's, it's, it's about your own desires. It's about your own goals in life. It's about your own ideals. It's about your own life. And for many of us throughout the week, we're busy living and working and doing and speaking for our own desires, for our own goals in life, and for our own ideals. And these things aren't, aren't necessarily bad things, right? They, they're good things. But when, when this is probably how we spend the bulk of our time throughout the week, when this is the way we live without much thought to anything else, in other words, when I move through most of my week and most of my day thinking about what I want, what I need, what I like, what I don't like, thinking about my goals and, and my desires, my agendas, when I live most of my life thinking about me, the danger is that the good things that I think about can easily become the ultimate things that I live for. And if I'm like this, and you're like this, and then we come together in a group like our church, then there's bound to be a clashing of goals. There's bound to be a conflict of desires. There's bound to be an opposition of ideals. And so it's no wonder then that quarrels can happen, even if it's over loyalties to particular leaders. It shouldn't be a surprise then to us that splits can happen. And cynically speaking, that's just how it is, because that's how people are. At the very heart of sin is the capital I. It's the ego, and it's inevitable. There's a problem of division and loyalties, something we may not relate with, but underneath this problem is the basic problem we all have, and that's the problem of the self. And so this is the problem I think Paul addresses, okay? That's the first point. Now you look at the second point here, there's not only the problem, but Paul makes a plea. The second pier is the plea. Because what we see here is this, that even if this were true, even if this is true, it doesn't mean that's how it should be. Why? Because Paul here has been saying all along, it's not who we are. Verses 1 to 9. It's not what we've been made to be, at least not in, in the church. And so into this division and quarreling of the church in Corinth, in verse 10, he makes appeal, an appeal. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. You see what Paul's doing here? Based on what God has done, verses 1 to 9, now in verse 10, he says, you be like this. You do this. And Paul here is making an appeal to the people here in Corinth to behave, to behave in such a way that reflects their identity and their fellowship in Jesus Christ. And so he says, I appeal to you based on what God has done, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, do these things. And there are two things that he says for this church to do. First, he wants them to agree. Now, when he says agree and all of them agree, he's not saying that we all agree on everything. Sometimes we agree to disagree on certain things. But the word agree here literally means to speak or, or means to, it means to confess, right? To confess the same truth, to share the same convictions, that we all agree on what we believe. 
And what is that what we believe? What we believe concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, let's all on this work and person of who Jesus is for us, okay? But the second thing he says to them in their unity and so that there'll be no division is this. He says, let there be no division, but that we be united in the same mind and judgment. Now, what does that word united mean? It's an interesting word here in, the, in our verse, but the word united, it was used in two ways. It was used of fishermen mending their torn nets. When they had to fix their nets, they were uniting it in a sense, right? It was also used for when a person's shoulder was dislocated and it was snapped back into its socket. And so when it was put back together, it was in a sense, they used this word, united. These are ways that they were used. And so Paul is saying to this church, you're not to be torn apart by division, but you're to be mended and, and knit together in love. You're not to be a church whose members are, are put out of joint. But as we might say, we're to be made whole and mobile and ready for action, okay? I think Paul knows that there's no perfectly visible unity on this side of heaven, that things do get torn, that once in a while things do get put out of joint. But if you're committed to unity, then you're also committed to healing, and you're also committed to repentance, and you're also committed to reconciliation, and so Paul is pleading with this church, for the sake of Christ then, be unified, okay? That's the plea here that we see, right? So we've got the problem uh, and the general problem of, of selfishness, and we see the plea that Paul makes. And here's the third point, and there's a priority. Look at how Paul explains or responds to the church's issue here in verse 13. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? These questions are rhetorical questions. Of course, the answer is no. No, Christ is not divided. So why are you? No, Paul wasn't crucified for you. It was Jesus. No, you weren't baptized in the name of Paul, but you were baptized in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. And so it's actually he's saying, weren't all of you baptized into the one Lord Jesus? Didn't one Jesus Christ give his life for all of you? Aren't you all saved by one faith in one Lord under one spirit? And why are you then quarreling? Why are you divided? So there's a priority here that Paul wants us to remember, that no matter what the difference, no matter what the issue or, or what the dispute is, even legitimate disputes, Paul wants us to remember who we are, that in any conflict over any difference, Paul reminds the Corinthian church and us if you read verse 9, which is not there on our passage, but in verse 9, just before verse 10, he says that you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You were called into the fellowship of his son. It's the one fellowship. And he's talking about a common life that we all share by faith in the one son, Jesus Christ. Our union with him. It's what Paul says here elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 4. We've been given one body. One spirit, one hope, one calling, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God and the Father of all. This is the kind of unity that Paul wants us to know. A kind of unity that's not based on our desires. It's not based on our agendas. It's not based on our ideals. Neither it is based on our vocation, our, our race, or even our gender. 
Unity here is based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Son. And that is the priority. That is a gospel priority. Now, let's be honest. As a person, you may not naturally have as much in common with others in your church right now. And in fact, you may not naturally get along with others in your church right now. But if you're a Christian today, you have a fellowship of the Son along with all of those with you in the church. And that truth ought to be a priority before anything else we talk about. I mean, think about this. I know it's hard in our church because we're small, but don't tell me we don't have much in common, right? Don't give me that we've got nothing really to talk about after a superficial greeting. Don't tell me we don't have any unity because what binds us together is Christ. We worship God together week after week. We hear the same message week after week. We sing the same songs, pray the same prayers together. I mean, don't give me that we just have nothing in common. It's the fellowship of the Son to which we were called. And it's not anything that we created, but it's founded on the unchangeable work of God, the irrevocable work of Christ, the unfailing ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This is a priority for Paul, and this is a priority for the church, and it ought to be a priority for us. If our priority is in Christ and the gospel we say believe, then this fellowship is a priority for us right so now what do we do how do we live out this this unity that that god has given to us in christ well let me just read a few verses for you because paul is pretty clear on this ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 he says this all humility gentleness with patience bearing one another eager to maintain the unity of the spirit philippians chapter 2 verse 3 paul says this to them do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Or Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you see these verses? How do we live out this unity? How do we live in the community where we may have different ideals, different goals, different ways of living, when we've always been thinking about ourselves? And here's the answer he gives. If selfishness is thinking about the self all the time, if that's the core issue behind this issue, then humility is what we need. And humility simply means, practically speaking, that you think more of everybody else other than yourself. It's the very opposite of our selfishness. Think about this. If you came to church with one goal in mind, what does that person need? What does these, do these people need from me? What can I do for other people? Can you imagine what our community would be like? Rather than coming to church and asking yourself, what am I going to get out of this? How am I going to you know, do this? Or what am I going to enjoy from this? Rather than asking those questions, what if we all came in thinking, what can we do for others, right? And we came in humbly that way. You'd have a kind of unity, I think, that would be a testimony to the world. Now, here's the question. Where do I get this kind of unity? Or where do I get this kind of humility? How do we get to be this humble? And the answer is obvious, right? You look at the cross. You look at who Jesus is. One who's humbled himself on a cross. Made himself nothing, as Paul says in Philippians. Bearing the condemnation we deserve. You know, there was that period early on in the, in the past year, 2019, I, I, was, I was sick and I was really complaining. I was just griping and complaining and I was just angry and all that kind of stuff. And I've said this to you before, but one day 
uh, you know, Yaren came to me and she shared with me some news about her best friend. And her best friend's husband, who's about my age, was diagnosed with leukemia. My age, diagnosed with leukemia. And as soon as she told me that, I was shut up. I couldn't say anything, right? I couldn't say anything. And in much the same way, when we struggle with our conflicts, when we quarrel over our opinions, when we take issues with this group or, or this person, or when we complain about anything and everything, when you're confronted with the cross, all mouths are shut up. When you see the cross, what you see is Jesus became what you and I refuse to be. We're again, looking down on others and judging others, it was Jesus who humbled himself by being obedient to the point of cross, right? I thought some people were just unbearable. Unbearable. It's Jesus who was bearing with us, and he bore in our place the punishment of our sins. And if we could just see Jesus, humility, the conduct we deserve, are shut up. All of us then at the cross are on level when it comes to the cross. Because there you see that all of us are without hope except in God's sovereign mercy. That we are all of us wretches that deserve nothing but wrath. And yet all of us are saved by his grace and his grace alone. And if we could see this really not, not just with our physical eyes, not our physical eyes, but our, the eyes of our faith, in, in our hearts, the cross of Christ, there you would find the kind of humility the gospel kind of humility that we need to live out our unity. Pastor of New York, uh, Tim Keller, has this book, The Freedom of Forgetfulness. And he has a great section uh, and more eloquently tells us what we're trying to say here with regards to, to the issue. And this is what he says, uh, quote, If we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seemed totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Do you hear what he says? Gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It simply means thinking of myself less. And he goes on to say this. Gospel humility is, needing to, is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. And that's the freedom of self-forgetfulness, end quote. Friends, this is so important, not just for the church in Corinth, but for us today, especially in our time right now. Because if we're naturally driven towards selfishness, just to kind of constantly think about ourselves on any other given day. Think of what fear can do to us, especially in these time of day. Think of the fear and what it could do to us. It compounds that issue. It drives us to think more 
about us ourselves. It's the crazy time we're living in, right? And many of us, we may be tempted to this kind of fear, right? With this disease and this, this sickness going around and, and always worried about whether we're going to catch it or whether my kids are going to catch it or whether my loved ones are going to catch it and what are we going to do if it happens? It, it, it's crazy. It does seem like an apocalyptic kind of situation sometimes, right? It, it's kind of crazy. We're, we're living in a time where hand sanitizers and toilet paper are like gold right? That's, that's ridiculous. We are living at a time where people cough around us. We give them an evil eye. We hug our loved ones, right? When you, when you go to a grocery store these days, every man, every woman is for themselves. And in a time like this, it's a kind of self-interest. It's a kind of selfishness that's completely on a different level, right? Be very honest. I have never washed my hands more than I've ever done in the past two weeks. And you can't get a bottle of hand sanitizer anywhere. And so I'm looking and I'm using mine very carefully, but I'm washed constantly to the point of it being dry. I've never done it. But I want us to know one thing. As much as you wash your hands, and you should because it's important, as much as you do it, just remember this. Jesus washed feet. He washed feet. He didn't wash his own feet. He washed other people's feet. He set an example for his disciples to follow. He got down on his knees and he washed the feet of dirty disciples for their sake. He humbled himself, thought less of himself, and more for the sake of others. Friends, by all means, do everything you need to do to love your family, to protect yourself, to protect your family and your loved ones. But at the same time, don't let fear stop you from loving your neighbor. Remember the faith that you were given and who you are and what you are. You are the church of Christ. You've been saved by his grace, filled with his mercy and love, called into the fellowship with him, called to be united. Why? Why? So that the world around you, so that people around you, even around the world, might know the kind of grace, the kind of love, the kind of humility that your God has shown you. Okay? So for the sake of Christ, for the sake of our church, for the sake of our testimony before him and the world, let's try and continue to live out our unity, not just in the church, but at home, in your neighborhoods, at your work, and wherever you might be. Let's pray for a kind of humility that considers less of ourselves but more of others, even as we do everything we can to protect those we love. And I pray that we are able to do this and that he brings us through this period of anxiousness and, and worry. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so 